0: As Sam said, we are concluding our three-week mini-series, "The Sea." Today, I was on an airplane this week, and um, I uh, I had a, a, a moment that, if you've ever flown, um, that we've all had when we when the plane takes off. And everyone in the and the plane is kind of like facing forward and going oh, like you, sort of that like brace yourself moment where you just kind of go oh, as the g forces hit you or whatever is taking place and the the plane is ascending. I have my AirPods in, and um in my le- I was sitting on the the right aisle of the plane, and I turned for whatever reason I turned this way and my left AirPod fell out of my ear, and into the aisle, and I turned to look at it and. And my eye is like my eyes were misseeing. Mis- like I saw what I saw before me did, made no sense to my eyes, and that was the AirPod hit the floor, and then immediately ran away. <laughs> it just ran backwards down the aisle. It was like it looked like a little mouse, like like just like just running away from me. And I, it was it was such an odd moment where I was I'm going, what is happening? It, it was like someone had it was like reeling it in on a fishing pole, you know, just like the, the air pod just goes all the way to the back of the plane, which was like I was like the middle of the plane, went all the way to the back of the plane and then just disappeared under this counter at the at the back of the plane where the flight attendants are. And I, I was I just burst out laughing as it was taking place because it was so crazy looking. And no one else is seeing it because everyone's kind of uh, bracing themselves. There's one guy in the back of the plane that saw it and was like, oh, you know, and me and him had a moment. I had my mask on and I'm I'm laughing. No one can tell that I'm laughing. Finally, so what had happened, obviously, was the plane was not flat. It was at a steep incline as we were ascending and simply the force of gravity and maybe other physical forces, inertia—I don't know—we're acting on the AirPod, and it was just sliding down an inclined aisle. But my eyes—it was such a shocking, weird sight that all I could do was burst into laughter. I went to the back of the plane once the seatbelt sign went off. I told the flight attendants. One of them said, "Oh yeah, I thought I saw something fly under that <laughs> counter." The counter was just the, the pull-out things that they pushed down the aisle, so they pulled it out, and I was able to get it, and all was right. In my world, but I, I was I was thinking I'm never going to see that thing again. It probably shot out a hole in the back of the plane or something. It's gone, it has gone. A vent that they just have open back there. We're going to read a story in just a moment in the Gospel of Mark. Um, you can actually go ahead and uh, and turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter where are we at? Six. Mark chapter six. We'll have it on the screen as well in just a minute, where the disciples see something that their minds cannot make sense of what their eyes are seeing, and so they create a story in the moment to make sense of what their eyes are seeing because there's no logical explanation for what they're seeing, aka AirPod running away down an airplane. So we'll go ahead and put this up on the screen. Mark 6, 45. Wow, that's a lot. Yeah, so um, I'm, I'm going to read it. You can read along in your Bible. You can read along uh, up on the screen and, um, and we're going to see what God has to say to us today. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. This is after uh, he's just fed the 5,000. So a few weeks ago, we read a story that was immediately after the feeding of the 4,000. There's two different miraculous feedings in the Gospels. This is the first one. So we were sort of in the future two weeks ago, three weeks ago. And now we're, we're at the first miraculous feeding of the 5,000 that's just taken place he he's dismissing the crowd that they just fed. After leaving them, he went up on a mountainside to pray. Later that night, the boat was in the middle of the lake and he was alone on land. He saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. Shortly before dawn, he went out to them walking on the lake on the Sea of Galilee. He was about to pass by them So let's just pause. This is the scene. Maybe it's a familiar story. So let's really, you know, get the picture in our minds. The disciples have been rowing all night, straining at the oars to try to get across this windy Sea of Galilee. Jesus walks out on the water just before dawn and is about to pass by them. Is this, is he whistling? Is he, is he pretending not to see them? Like, what is this? Jesus is just kind of about to pass them by casually. They look up. They see him, and when they saw him walking on the lake, they thought he was a ghost. Pause. This is the story. Their minds made up collectively in the moment. The only thing that makes sense based on what we're seeing is that there is a ghost walking out on the lake. They cried out because they all saw him and were terrified. Immediately he spoke to them and said, Take courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. Then he climbed into the boat with them, and the wind died down. They were completely amazed, for they had not understood about the loaves. They didn't get the the meaning of the miracle that had just taken place. So therefore, this next miracle made no sense to them. The loaves, the miraculous feeding made no sense, so then Jesus walking on water, of course, doesn't make any sense. Why? I love this. Mark is inserting commentary on what's taking place within the disciples. He says their hearts were hardened. And take note of that. Whenever you read the the Bible, especially in the Gospels, sometimes Jesus is commenting on what's taking place kind of below the surface. But oftentimes the the Gospel writers themselves are commenting on what's taking place in the minds or hearts of the people uh, that are there. And so Mark is saying their hearts were hardened. When they had crossed over, they landed at Gennesaret and anchored there. As soon as they got out, got out off the boat, out of the boat, people recognized Jesus. They ran throughout that whole region, carried the sick on mats to wherever they heard he was, and wherever he went into villages, towns, or the countryside, they placed the sick in the marketplaces. They begged him to let them touch even the edge of his cloak, and all who touched it were healed. Jesus walking on the lake. Today, we're talking about ghosts, lizards, that one time a guy survived being swallowed by a fish, surfing, and the most important question you will answer all week long. Do I have your attention? Yeah, that's pretty good stuff, right? All right. So Jesus is out walking on the lake, going for a stroll. They see him. And I just want to point out a couple of things from this passage. Let's, let's throw it back up on the screen. A couple of things from this passage that I, just, I, want, to, I want to point out to you. First is that uh, it's coming. It's coming back up. Okay, there you go. First is uh, that the disciples don't recognize Jesus. They've spent a good bit of time with him. Months, maybe years at this point. They, they Day and night, they're with him. They, they live on a journey with Jesus. They've seen him do incredible things. They've heard amazing teachings come from his mouth. But here in this moment, they do not recognize Jesus. I just want to point out the juxtaposition in the story. This is great literature. This is great writing by Mark. That the disciples who spend all their time with Jesus, they're familiar with him, don't recognize him. They don't, they blow it. They don't, they 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 think he's a ghost. Why? Does he look different? There's It doesn't say that he did. He's not like in a transfigured state or anything. He's just Jesus out of context. This is important for us. Here's a big idea for us. If you follow Jesus long enough, he will lead you out of context. And he will appear in your life out of context in ways that are unprecedented in your experience up to this point. If you follow him long enough, you will be led to a moment or many moments where you will at least be tempted to say to yourself, that can't be Jesus. That can't be him. That's not my Jesus. My Jesus would never go there. My Jesus would never do that. My Jesus would never say that. My Jesus would never associate with that person. My Jesus, that's not my Jesus. Eventually, Jesus will lead you to a place where you do not recognize him because he is leading us out of context. And they find Jesus out of context in this moment, therefore they don't recognize him. But look at the juxtaposition here. As soon as they land, this I don't think this is an accident, this, this sentence, as soon as they got out of the boat, people recognized Jesus. So there's this juxtaposition. The people who spent all their time with Jesus didn't recognize him because he was in a strange context. But the people that he was going to minister to, oh, they knew who he was. They recognized him. Their need, there's a desperation in the crowds in this account. In their need, they were looking for him. They were looking for Jesus and therefore they recognized him. If you follow Jesus long enough, he's going to lead you to a moment or many moments where you think to yourself, that can't be Jesus simply because you've never seen him there before. Have you had this? Maybe you've had some of these moments where you go, that's different. That's different than than what I grew up being taught about religion. That's different than the experiences I've had so far in youth group or in college ministry. That's different. I, I haven't, I'm being challenged in this moment by where I'm seeing, by the context I'm finding Jesus in. This is going to continue to happen for us. This is actually part of the journey of following Jesus. So there are a couple places that Jesus is going to lead them to and lead us to, and I just want to name these and spend a little bit of time exploring this with the time that we have together. The first is Jesus will lead us to new people. He's going to lead you to new people. If you want to write this down, Jesus Jesus is leading us somewhere. Where is he taking us? What's the out-of-context place? He's going to lead you to new people not just the same type of people that you've always associated with or that you've always associated as Jesus people Jesus will challenge you in every way as he leads you to new people here's the context the 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 scriptural context of the passage that we're in this is just a little little note for as you're studying the bible context is like everything so and there's lots of different types of context the 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 kind of closest context that we need to pay attention to is if you've got a verse that stands out to you, well, what are the verses before and after it saying? That's, that's the immediate context of what you're reading. What's the story that that verse or that sentence or that statement exists within? What's the bigger story? So that's, that's like, okay, the, cha- the other passages in the chapter, maybe. Uh, another piece of context is what's the What's the larger narrative that this individual chapter or story exists within? That's context, right? Um, There's a lot of other types of context you can explore as well. But I just want to look at some of the context of the passages around um, what we're reading. So we just read 6, 45 through 56. So immediately afterward, if you go to chapter 7, Jesus launches into a teaching where he begins challenging people's religious legalism. And the concepts that the Jewish leaders had about uh, ceremonial washing and cl- cleanness and uncleanness. And he goes into this whole thing, and maybe this is familiar territory for you, where he says, hey, it's not what, what goes into the mouth that makes someone unclean. It's not whether or not you, you ceremonially washed your hands properly. And what he's referring to is there were, there were uh, food laws and some um, ceremonial laws of the Old Testament. But then the, the religious leaders had added rules to the laws prescribed by God. And so by the time you get to the first century, uh, there's all these additional ceremonies and rules that people were, were uh, following that actually God never commanded. And so there's all this ceremonial washing, and, and, and Jesus is challenged, like, how come you and your disciples don't wash your hands in this way before you eat? And it was like, it's just this thing that had become a tradition of people. And so Jesus goes into this big challenging thing, challenges these religious leaders about their concept of, of cleanness and uncleanness, and, and he's saying, hey, it's, it, it's what comes out of a person. Mark seven twenty is what defiles them. It's from within, out of a person's heart that evil thoughts come, uh, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and defile a person. It's not about this legalistic practice. And so he's, he's challenging, um, he's challenging their, their religious thinking, their legalism. Then the next passage, next verse, verse 24, a Syrophoenician woman, a woman who was Greek, born in Syrian Phoenicia, meaning not Jewish. She was an outsider. And most of Jesus's ministry had been to the Jewish people. And this woman comes to him asking for a miracle. And Jesus has this dialogue with her, and then gives her what she's asking for. And so we see this movement just in the passages following Jesus being out of context. We see him, him challenging the thinking of these insider people and then moving towards new people, moving towards who the Jews would have thought of as outsiders. God is going to lead you to new. If you follow Jesus long enough, he will lead you to people that you would have never expected to even associate with if you follow him long enough. Acts chapter 10, there's a well-known story about Peter. He's, um, he's praying on a rooftop in Joppa at Simon the Tanner's house. And he has a vision where God shows him a sheet coming down from heaven being held up by its four corners, and in the middle of the sheet are all sorts of clean and unclean animals. And God says to him, Peter, kill and eat. And to Peter, a devout Jew, this challenging moment comes where he's going, what? No, you're telling me to do something that you told us not to do. You told us not to eat unclean food. I would never do that. I would never eat anything unclean. And Jesus says, don't call anything unclean that I have made clean. Three times this happens. Peter, kill and eat. No, I would never do it. Don't call anything unclean that I've made clean. And when you think about the, uh, the four corners picture, like if you picture a sheet and the, the, the tension of it being held by four corners of the sheet, that means that everything kind of falls to the middle you know unless it's being held very tautly which i just don't is tautly the word or taut just taut i don't know maybe if it's an adverb it's ly very taut sheet unless it's very very taut the, the all the animals are going to slide to the middle and bump into each other and so there's this there's you got to imagine all these these lizards and reptiles and and it says four-footed animals they're all sort of bouncing into each other and rubbing against each other and crawling all over each other. And Jesus is saying, Peter, kill and eat. Um, this isn't about food, we find out. As Peter goes to Cornelius' house in that chapter in the next, it's about people. It's about people that the Jewish people would have thought were unclean outside. And the, the, the gospel at that point in Acts, they thought that it was really still just for themselves. And in this moment, it becomes clear that everything God was giving these Jewish followers of Jesus, he wanted to give to the Gentiles, to everybody. Uh, he, he, the Spirit is poured out. And the same thing that took place in Acts 2, as people are filled with the Spirit, they're speaking in other tongues, there's this, this manifestation of the Spirit among them. That's a, a big deal because that means it, that, that becomes evidence in their, in their experience of God's movement. The same thing happens in Cornelius' house. And the message coming through is, I mean, Peter certainly is having a, that's not my Jesus moment. My Jesus would, he, he, he's focused on my people. And he discovers in this moment, no, God's actually, his purposes are for everybody and and I, I kind of like this phrase of like, that's not my Jesus. You're right, it's not your Jesus. He's everybody's Jesus. He belong, he's giving himself to everyone. And so if you follow him along, uh, long enough, he will lead you to new people. New people. He's going to challenge your biases. He's going to challenge your prejudices. He's going to look like a ghost out on those waters. Because he's going to, you're going to see him in a context you've never seen him before. New people. That's the first place or group that Jesus is going to lead you to. The second is new perspectives, parentheses, on old people. <laughs> he's going to challenge you to think differently about people that are already in your life. New people and then new perspectives on old people, a.k.a. forgiveness. Jesus, if you follow Jesus long enough, he's going to lead you to people that you want him to hate because they hurt you or they wronged you or they offended you or they did those things to somebody you care about. If you follow Jesus long enough, he's going to lead you Cross the sea to a place of new perspectives on old people. There's a story in the Old Testament about a guy named Jonah. Anybody ever heard this story? What happens in that story? Just yell it. He gets swallowed by a fish. What's the... Give me one word. What's the story of Jonah about? Jesus and, the Jesus and the resurrection. That's great. Great answer. You can say that about a lot of stuff. That's good. <laughs> Here's what I'll tell you I always thought the story of Jonah was about because I don't want it to be a gotcha moment. Like, you're wrong. You, have the, you don't know what it's about. Um, <laughs> I always thought it was about obedience. Growing up, it always kind of, I don't know if it was the telling of the story or if it was just where my mind went. The moral of the story always kind of felt like it was like, man, you better obey when God tells you to do something. Otherwise, <laughs> swallowed by a fish, who knows if you'll make it out. It's at least not pleasant. So avoid that. Do what he says. That, that's kind of what it felt like the story was about. Am I the only one that always thought that the story of Jonah was like, it's about, it's about like making sure you do what God says, right? Was that? Yeah, it's a great parenting tactic. Um <laughs> I've had moments, I mean, I don't know if you've ever been in a body of water and you're like, we're good, right, God? Like, (laughs) you would just tell me if there was something I was I should have done. Right? Just tell me. I'm here. Just talk to me, man. We don't have to do all this. I've had that, I mean, like, seriously, had that moment. I always thought that the story of Jonah was about obedience. Turns out it's it's not at all. Jonah, real quick recap. Jonah. Uh, God tells him to go to Nineveh and preach to the Ninevites, and he doesn't want to. Instead, he goes to, uh, anybody remember what town he goes to? Tarsus, right? He goes, and so he gets on a boat and goes out into the water, gets thrown overboard because there's a storm, and he's like, it's me, it's my fault. Gets swallowed by a giant fish, three days, swallowed, vomited up onto the shore, and uh, then he finally decides sulkingly to go to Nineveh, preach to the Ninevites. Very heartwarming message. He says, 40 days, you're dead. 40 um, days and you're dead. It's like you can imagine just like ringing a bell. like 40 days, 40 days, I'm doing it, God. You happy? I'm doing it 40 days and then you're going to be dead. And then it says that they repented. Their hearts turned. They, they tore their clothes. They covered themselves in sackcloth and ashes. And they turned to God and God has mercy on them. And at the end of the story, you read this, and Jonah says, Ah, I knew it. I knew you would forgive them. And I didn't want that. So I ran. Why wouldn't you have wanted it? Well, Nineveh is the capital of Assyria, which is the world superpower at the time, the greatest oppressor of the people of Israel. So the Ninevites were like the bullies, and the Israelites were the victims. They'd been hurt. They've been wronged by the Ninevites. The Ninevites were the bad guys in the minds of ancient Israel. And there's this incredible... Y'all, if you need just something to be inspired about the scriptures and the Old Testament scriptures... I love this about the Bible and especially the prophets in the Old Testament... Is that they're self-critiquing. They're not self-aggrandizing. They're not like, we're the best. We always get it right. The scriptures are self-critiquing of the people of God. Look how wrong we are. Look how how much we've missed it. The book of Jonah is a criticism of the mindset of ancient Israel, written by ancient Israel, saying, man, we, we hate our enemies, and God loves them. And we've, we're wrong for that. Will we change? And so this, the, the story of Jonah is not about obedience. It's about forgiveness. The moral of the story, and I love this because I think that we could get into, like, all these debates of, like, was he actually swallowed by a whale? Is this literal? How could a person survive that? And like then we get on these like this high horse of you know the people who really believe the Bible are like, believe it! If you don't believe it, then none of it's true. And so you have to believe. It. And then others are like, I can't believe anything because I and it becomes this whole thing about like whether I can actually believe the stuff that the Bible says. And we miss the whole point, which is like, are you willing to forgive people who've hurt you? That's the moral of the story. Not can a man survive three days in the belly of a fish? How do we test this theory? Did it actually happen? I don't know. Probably. I mean, I'm like, yeah, I I believe it. But I don't, like, that's not the most important thing. <laughs> Is it? Am I willing to forgive the people who've wronged me? Or am I counting on my Jesus to, out of love for me, hate them. They'll get what they deserve. Will they? Maybe they won't. Jonah preaches to the Ninevites. <laughs> they, they repent. God forgives them. It's like a great... It's a, it's a city. A, an entire city. The most powerful city in the world... <laughs> turns to God, and then Jonah, like a, like a sullen teenager, goes up on a hill, sits under a gourd plant, which is just all very strange, pouts. This plant grows, gives him shade, then it withers, and he gets mad about the plant. Then God comes to him, and, um, and the story ends, such a weird ending of the story. The story ends like this. It ends with Jonah saying, I knew you'd forgive him. And God says, God just asks him a question. He says, you know, there's over 100,000 people there. Shouldn't I, shouldn't I have mercy on them? Just ask them this question. Actually, let me read the, the actual. Um, so this is a test of like, how well do you know the Bible? Find Jonah now. I don't have it marked. It's somewhere in the middle of the prophets. There we go. We're almost there. Nope, not Joel. Not Obadiah. Which one does Jonah come after? Oh, there it is. Good. Got it, got it, got it, got it. Right before Micah. <laughs> so funny. Okay, end of Jonah. Jonah says, I'm so angry, I wish I were dead <laughs> to God. <laughs> it's so dramatic. And the Lord said, You've been concerned about this plant that grew and then died. Though you did not tend it or make it grow, it sprang up overnight and died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left and also many animals? And then it's over. That's the end of the book of Jonah. God just says, should I not be concerned about them? I mean, what happens with Jonah? Does he learn? Does Does his heart change? Does he die on that hill bitter and jaded? Y'all, you could spend your whole life professing Jesus and be bitter, jaded, angry, judgmental, closed-minded, and closed-hearted. Following Jesus, he is eventually going to lead you out onto these waters, and he's going to lead you to new perspectives. On people who you thought you had figured out because of the way they treated you, things they said to you, their life decisions, whatever. The question is going to be Am I willing to change my mind? Am I willing to change my heart? Well, let God lead me into forgiveness. So He's going to lead you to new people, He's going to lead you to new perspectives. And I think that the only way to sustain this sort of dynamic relationship with God, and it's got to be dynamic. If you're taking notes, write down the word dynamic. It's got to be dynamic. We anchor ourselves on the truth of the scriptures and on the truth of Jesus, but you know what the truth is? The truth is that Jesus is moving. That's the truth, and following a person means it must be dynamic. And so new people, new perspectives. And this last thought here is just, it's got to be new knowing. Like, you know God. I know God. I have this relationship with God. But but if I'm going to continue in a relationship with him, I need to be open to a new knowing of him, which means I'm communing with him regularly. I've got rhythms. Like Sam was talking about just prayer and, and experiencing intimacy with God at the end of worship. Do I have space in my life? to commune regularly with God so that my knowing of God can continue to blossom and flourish and move with him? Or is my knowing of God based on an experience from 10 years ago? Is my entire relationship with God based on a decision I made in high school or college? Jesus, what I love about this story is, is the bookends of it or actually, there's sort of like two beginnings of it, are Jesus and creating this space of connection with the Father. First, he before the feeding of the 5,000, he says, hey, let's go to a, soli- a solitary place to rest, which for Jesus means go, go pray, which is what we see happen. They get to the solitary place, a crowd of 5,000 <laughs> finds them. So he's moved by compassion and, and ministers to them. But then he goes up on the mountain and it says he goes up on the hill to pray. And it's from that place of communion, communion with the Father that he walks out on the water. And the disciples see him and they don't recognize him. And I think he's modeling for us the picture of a life that is able to follow him to new people and new perspectives. And that's a life. It's, here it is. Drum roll. Never heard this one in a sermon before. It's a life of prayer. <laughs> Are we people who pray, not just people who say prayers, but people who create space to meet with God, to commune with God, to be led along by God? I always think of, when I think about this dynamic relationship, I, I just always think about surfing, something that I love to do, It kind of grew up doing, and I, I love this idea of riding a wave that is, uh, it's dynamic, it's like the most dynamic activity I can imagine doing because there's, it's literally energy moving through a medium water that is changing with each sec- passing second as the the wave is responding to the changing depth of the the, the ground underneath it, and and so to, to there, what's required to ride a wave well is presence and the ability to respond to what's taking place, and there's just this dynamic state that you have to be in, and it's awesome, it's, and it's so fun, and it feels, it's like a spiritual thing. I know it sounds so like, bro, but it's, it is, it feels like, oh my god, I feel like I'm connected with Nature or something in a way that I, I I normally am not, but it feels like following Jesus. Mark says their hearts were hardened. Their hearts were hardened. They had just performed the greatest miracle that you and I could ever possibly imagine doing. 5,000 people fed by a handful of loaves and fish and their hearts were hardened. How How is this possible? I think this exposes the danger for us of being people who do things for God, who make ourselves available to be used by Jesus in incredible ways. Yet in the moments following are doing we still just don't even recognize Jesus and where he's going I'm going to invite the band to come back up and so the question the most important question that you will answer all week I'm going to give you the I'm going to put the week out there it might be a month it could be your whole life I don't want to put too much on this definitely the most important question you will answer this week is simply this Is your heart open? Is your heart open? I think the temptation of the age is cynicism, jadedness, criticism from a distance, criticizing whoever, people who think differently than you, that other political party, those leaders over there, whatever, fill in the blank. Everybody's been mad at the government, but we can't do anything about that, so you're just mad at everybody else. But in reality, you don't realize that you're all just mad at your dad. So, But that's the psycho. <laughs> Go to, I've been to some counseling. Oh, I think everybody's just mad at their parents. Okay, great. That's a joke, and it's true. <laughs> the temptation of the age, though, is just this hardness. We get frustrated, we get mad, we lose trust in people, and so we just get rigid. And um, I've seen it in myself. I've seen it in myself in this past year where I, I, I find myself less patient than I've ever been with people. Um, quicker to become frustrated or even just angry. Um, quicker to... to. Uh, just totally wrap somebody up in my personal explanation of who and what they are. Do you do this? Am I the only one who ever does this? Or you just think you've got somebody figured out. I'll tell you what they're like. Like, <laughs> don't even know. Like, it just, it's easy, right, to have a headline for a person. But we, you wouldn't want somebody doing that for you because you're complex and nuanced and have all these layers and this story and all these reasons and So the question for us is: Is my heart open? And um, I feel it. I feel the opening in myself taking place in in moments, in spaces like the, the, our our worship time earlier, where I'm able just to like, oh, just just focus on God's goodness, and get kind of swept up in a moment. Maybe it's an early morning where you get away and you get a journal and your Bible and just pray, or it's a time where you're like, I'm just gonna sit, I'm gonna breathe, and I'm gonna think about Jesus. <laughs> Maybe it's taking a, a lunch break and just going for a walk instead of going out. to so just create some space to let tenderness grow in you again. Is your heart open? The most important question you'll answer This week. Lord, let us take this time now, this moment, to just create space in ourselves, to give you permission to change our minds. To even become aware of the state of our hearts. Become aware of it and to name it. Maybe that's enough today. To confess again our commitment to following you, Jesus. Not in concept, not the idea of you. But to saying no, I wanna like, I want to ride the wave, which means I I want the dynamic, I'm saying yes to the dynamic movement of God in my life. And committing to be present to that and becoming present again right now. To where you're going, what you're saying, who you're leading me to. It's another moment of saying yes. starts with an open heart. So Jesus, we, um, we open our hearts to you and your love and your goodness today. Amen.